Andrew Balfour and the Team One of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly appearance, is Fangraphs Managing Editor, Dave Cameron. And as per usual, Dave Cameron utilizes this episode of the podcast towards the end of analyzing all baseball. The listener might be curious as to what precisely we discuss. The answer to that is, in no small part, the recent mega deal, officially a mega deal, between the Boston Red Sox and Los Angeles Dodgers that saw Adrian Gonzalez, Carl Crawford, and Josh Beckett, along with Nick Punto, all move to the L.A. Dodgers for James Loney and four prospects. I asked Cameron what that trade means for the Dodgers, what it means for the Red Sox, both uh, for the remainder of 2012 and, perhaps more interestingly, 2013 and beyond. We also discussed Max Scherzer and his excellent performance on Max Scherzer Sunday, and also the excellence of third overall pick from the most recent draft, Mike Zunino, currently has the highest WRC plus of all minor leaguers. It's Fangraphs Audio. It features Managing Editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. of the month, I think, probably, is Mike Zunino's performance at Double-A Jackson. I think that's what everyone is talking about today. <laughs> that's the thing that's most interesting to me, or at least uh, apropos our relationship. Mike Zunino's been really good. Third overall pick in the most recent draft. Catcher, yeah. catcher, question mark? Catcher? Definitely a catcher. He was drafted because they uh, they definitely think he can stick a catcher. Right. Relative to when they drafted Jeff Clement? Yeah, Clement was always a question mark to stick behind the plate and was drafted for his bat. Zunino is more of, he was seen as like a high floor, medium ceiling guy who could catch. They liked his leadership, um, and would hit for some power, um, but wasn't projected to be a monster bat. It was more of a, a guy who can catch and will hit well for being a catcher. Right. Now, uh, obviously there's some, uh, in his line currently, there's some influence of, um, Babip which I think is sitting around 400 in Jackson. But he also has like a 250 uh, WRC+. Plus. Yeah, 240. And I actually think it's Babbitt and Jackson is only like 320. It was pretty high in Everett, which is where they started him off in short season league. Uh, he destroyed it up there, and then they promoted him to double-A a couple weeks ago, and he's actually gotten better. He's cut his walk rate, uh, or he's cut his strikeout rate in half. He's hitting for more power than he did. Uh, and, uh, yeah, his overall line's even better even though Babbitt's gone down. So, there's not really much to quibble with about what Zanino's doing other than small sample size. I mean, we've seen guys kill it in the minors for two months before, and it hasn't meant anything. And, you know, obviously Zanino is uh, a, a guy who should be hitting bad pitching in the Northwest League since he was destroying FEC pitching in college. Uh, I don't think anyone thought he was going to hit like this in, in AA already, but, you know, at the same time, it's two weeks. Right. Well, it must be exciting for you, at least, and for Mariners fans generally. Yeah, I mean, I think the interesting thing with Zanino is um, he was kind of drafted as a guy who wasn't supposed to get all that. He wasn't supposed to be that exciting. He was kind of the catcher version of Dustin Ackley when they took him a few years ago. The idea was that he could get to the majors quickly and provide some value, but wasn't supposed to be a star. Uh, the fact that he's destroying the baseball and not being out makes him maybe a little more interesting offensively than we were led to believe. And so what will that do to the Mariners? I mean, provided uh, Zunino hits not necessarily at this pace obviously but um is you know maybe profiles even as an average major league hitter uh what does that do to the mariners 
uh, catching situation? Uh, well, I think the reality is that Jesus Montero's day as a catcher are almost over. Uh, he's been pretty bad behind the plate, as everyone expected he would be. Uh, there was some talk earlier in the season that he was better than they expected, but he, he, realistically, he's been pretty bad. Um, John Jason has emerged as a guy who can probably hold the catching position down with a platoon partner next year, so you don't really need Montero to spend too much more time working at catcher anyway. So my guess is Montero is going to move to first base uh, this offseason or next spring. Um, Justin Smoke's been a total flop there, so they need a new first baseman. And with Zanino coming, you can look at Jason as a bridge guy and say, you know, we think Jaso and some veteran right-handed platoon guy can hold it down until Zanino gets here, and then maybe Jaso moves to a DH bench bat, pinch hitter role uh, when Zanino arrives. Yeah, I believe Jaso's been the best hitter for the Mariners this year. Is that right? By, by far. I think mm-hmm. Jaso's actually been a top-10 hitter against right-handed pitching this year. His platoon splits are huge, but against righties, he's running like a 380, 390 Woba. He's, uh, he's hit right-handers very, very well this year. All right, now that we have uh, ostracized the majority of listeners, uh, let's Which is get, what we do every week. Right, yeah, naturally. Let's get to uh, the big thing that happened and really was, uh, pro- you know, or will prove to be the new story of August. Um, certainly one of the biggest of the season as well, and that is the mega trade. Are you prepared to call it a mega trade of, uh, between the Boston Red Sox and L.A. Dodgers? I think whenever nine players and $260 million change hands, the word mega is appropriate. The word mega, right. So it is a, it is officially a mega trade. Uh, TM, according to Dave Cameron, uh, it's right. It's notable in that I think uh, I, I think there may be only one player ever with. Uh, well, this is probably wrong, but only one player previously uh, with a hundred million dollar contract had been traded, and two were traded in this in this one trade, in this one deal. That, that definitely seems wrong, right? I mean, Mike Hampton was traded, Kevin Brown was traded. Uh, okay, so it's a fact that I misheard, and then. Uh, regurgitated. But in any case, there were a lot of expensive players going one direction in this trade. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think financially, it's the largest uh, acquisition any team has ever made um, in one single transaction. I don't think anyone's ever taken on 200 plus million dollars in trade uh, in salaries before, mainly because very few players make that kind of money. So Right. Uh, okay. And it's weird. Can I say that a weird thing is the Dodgers are very clearly a team in contention right now. They're just uh, a few games, a couple games behind the, the Giants. One of the players they acquired is Carl Crawford, who's not playing this year. Right. Uh, can we address that first? Uh, in, because it's a bit mysterious to me, although I assume that there's some reason. I will say that this, if you're looking for first, so this is probably the first time a player has been traded two days after having Tommy John surgery. I doubt that has ever happened before. Uh, so, yeah, it's a little interesting that Crawford gets traded. Um, but I think his inclusion in the deal was basically uh, a sweetener for the Red Sox to give up Adrian Gonzalez. I mean, the... In reality, this is the Dodgers acquiring Adrian Gonzalez and taking a whole bunch of other stuff in exchange to get Adrian Gonzalez because the Red Sox weren't going to give him up for nothing. And so the price to get Adrian Gonzalez was also taking Josh Beckett and Carl Crawford and surrendering five prospects. Five prospects who, um, I mean, various, or maybe four prospects and James Loney, is that it? Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. So it's five players. Uh, two of whom are fringe prospects, one of whom is a terrible first baseman who will be non-tendered at the end of the year, and then two legitimate prospects. Uh, right, and the legitimate ones being uh, Ruby De La Rosa and, and Alan, Alan Webster. Webster. Yeah. Correct. Uh, I mean, Ruby De La Rosa, when he was pitching last year before he had surgery, um, he was among the league leaders in average fastball velocity among starters. Yeah, I mean, he throws 96 with a nasty changeup. That's a pretty good starting spot. Uh, obviously, injuries are a concern. 
with any pitcher who blew out his arm. Um, and, you know, the breaking ball probably needs to improve, but there's a chance he could start and chance he could be a pretty good starter if he uh, commands his pitches well. And Webster's another high-velocity guy who, uh, you know, might end up in the bullpen but has a chance to start potentially. Um, and so I think anytime you get two fireballing guys who miss bats, I mean, that's not a bad return. Now, so it's hard to, to look at a deal like this um, and say what should happen necessarily because th- this is not sort of a situation with precedent. But what if – would you have been shocked or or surprised or raised an eyebrow if this exact same deal had happened with nothing going back to the Red Sox? Um, I mean, I think if the Red Sox uh, hadn't received a single player in compensation, I still would have liked this trade for them. And if the Dodgers would have done this deal without giving up a single player, I mean, they probably had to go up Loney just because they needed that roster spot, uh, and it saved them some money going the other way. But uh, I think realistically, if the Dodgers had just said, we will give you no one and we will claim all three of these players on waivers and you will just let them all go, I'm still not sure I would have liked this deal for the Dodgers. I might have been okay with it. Uh, and I think, you know, like, I, tr- I tried to talk myself into it because the Dodgers are essentially spending like Yankees West, and I think there's some fallacy to continually criticizing teams like the Yankees who just overspend and win championships anyway. Uh, but I think at the same time, as I wrote today, you know, the, the Dodgers had alternatives, and this, if they wanted to spend $250 million, I'm not sure this was the best way to do it. Right. Well, let's talk about that briefly. Uh, you, yeah, in fact, you did write a piece uh, at the site today called What Were the Dodgers' Alternatives? And uh, I guess essentially what you're looking at here is is uh, uh, a hypothetical situation in which, well, I mean, it wasn't that, it wasn't really that hypothetical before the weekend, uh, but in which the 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 Dodgers don't take on uh, in excess of what 250 million dollars in payroll, uh, and they head into the off season with a roster very similar to the one they had last week. Um, what were their alternatives in that case, and how do they compare to what they picked up? Yeah, I mean, so I went through and basically just did an overview of some of the big-name free agents. Obviously, I couldn't walk through every single player, but just gave an overview of, like, Josh Hamilton and Nick Swisher and uh, Mike Napoli and some of the guys who would profile as big bat, Adrian Gonzalez, replacement types, and kind of estimated what they would sign for and what kind of package you could have gotten for about the same amount of money. And, you know, based on my estimates, which could be wildly wrong for all I know, but, you know, to the best of my ability to guess, uh, I estimated that for about the same amount of money, uh, the Dodgers could have walked away with Josh Hamilton, Nick Swisher, and Ryan Dempster, uh, which is, to me, not bad, or Zach Greinke uh, and Mike Napoli and Nick Swisher. Uh, Nick Swisher is a common name in all of these because he plays first base, and there's not very many first basemen out there on the free agent market this winter. Uh, or they could have gotten uh, Nick Swisher and... Uh, I can't even remember the names I used in the last one, but I think Napoli was in that deal as well, where Swisher would play the outfield, Napoli would play first, and then uh, a cheaper starting pitcher, um, and then have $60 million left over. Animal Sanchez might have been that guy. But I think there were different packages they could have gotten uh, that would have returned similar amounts of value for either similar cost or less cost, and not costing them the prospects they gave up. Uh, but you do have to offset with the fact that you couldn't get any of those guys until this winter and they wouldn't start playing for you till next March. So how you value the ability to make a run this year kind of depends on, uh, you know, or determines whether you want to make a move now or wait until free agency. Right. So, I mean, extending from that, what do you think is the Dodgers' argument for the deal, um, whether stated or implicit, uh, for, yeah, for making this deal? Well, I think if you're a Dodger fan trying to justify this deal, you have two, two arguments you can make. 
The first one, which is the one that I think most people are making, is we have more money than God. It doesn't matter what we spend. This isn't going to stop us from doing anything. And there's a chance that that could be true. I mean, we don't really know what the Dodgers' payroll ceiling is. Since the Dodgers' ownership took over, they've spent in excess of $400 million in player acquisitions or re-signings between Yasiel Puig and Andre Ethier and Hanley Ramirez and now this trade. I mean, $400 million in five months. Like, this is not an insignificant outlay of cash. Uh, so for all we know, the Dodgers are going to have so much money that they're going to make the Yankees look poor, and they're going to go spend Zach Granke and Josh Hamilton anyway and play Josh Hamilton at third base and just laugh at everybody. Uh, I think that we can't write that off as a possibility. And if it turns out that the Dodgers have unlimited funds and are going to run a $400 million payroll and run away with the NL West and they're going to make money off of it, more power to them. <laughs> I mean, if you have that kind of money and you want to throw it around, uh, I'm not going to tell you you can't do it. I don't think that's realistic. I think the luxury tax is a significant barrier to spending that much money. You get taxed on every dollar over $178 million. So if you spend $400 million, you're going to end up spending like $600 million on your payroll. I don't think any team wants to do that or can be profitable doing that. Uh, so more likely, I think the Dodgers are essentially betting on getting their fan base back. The McCourts drove them away uh, with their terrible divorce and the way they handled the franchise during their last years there. Um, and I think the new ownership is betting that this is a, an opportunity to win that they have now that you know might not be available in the future. Uh, Clayton Kershaw could blow out his arm. Matt Kemp could blow out his knee. You don't know what's going to happen. And they're looking at it and saying, look, we can put our stamp on this. We can totally erase the McCourt memory from the fan base, get into the playoffs, get 50,000 people into Dodger Stadium, sell 45,000 season tickets next year, and uh, make back a lot of the money that we lost when these fans left. Right, and also... Uh, and also be, in, in theory, winning, because that division uh, has not been a particularly strong one in recent years. Right. I mean, the Giants are certainly vulnerable. Uh, you know, with Lindsay having a down year, they're not an impenetrable team. They've got some, you know, interesting pieces, Melky Cabrera being suspended. Uh, this is not a team they can't run down. So the division is certainly winnable. The National League is winnable. I mean, honestly, right now, the Nationals are going to shut down Steven Strasburg for the playoffs, so they're not a team that you can't beat in the, in the playoffs. And, you know, the Reds are... A good team who's, you know, without their best player right now. We don't know that Joey Votto is going to be 100% in October. I don't think you can look at it and say the National League has uh, already decided the Dodgers are making a futile run at this thing. I mean, they very well could end up in the World Series, especially if Gonzalez hits well and Josh Beckett returns to some kind of prior form. Uh, switching leagues often helps pitchers find, uh, at least when they go from the AL to the NL, find prior form that they hadn't shown in the American League East. So uh, there's a chance this could really work for the Dodgers this year. Um if it doesn't, and they don't even win the division, or they don't make it to the wild card, and they don't end up in the playoffs, they might have gone into this winter thinking, huh, maybe we would have rather had you know, some other package of players than the one we ended up with. Now, with regard to the Red Sox, they have crazy financial flexibility at this point. Uh, they don't necessarily have talent at every position. Uh, I assume that some of the players whose names you invoked with regard to um, the Dodgers, the players they would have, in theory, picked up. I assume that at least one of those players um, will end up on the Red Sox, or at least all of them will be looked at by the Red Sox. Maybe. I mean, I, I can't imagine Josh Hamilton going to Boston, honestly. The media pressure there doesn't seem like a good fit for him, especially with his off-field issues. Uh, you know, like the report of Josh Hamilton showing up at a Dallas hotel bar and drinking over the winter would have been the front-page story in Boston for about six months. In Texas, that went away after about a week. I just can't see that Hamilton's going to want to uh, subject himself to the Boston media, so I don't think he's a fit there. The same might be true of Zach Greinke. I don't think anyone really knows uh, 
what goes on with him in terms of whether he wants to play in a big city or not. There's a lot of speculation about his anxiety disorder, but he's playing in Los Angeles right now, and I mean, he's not pitching that well, but he didn't like reject the trade or anything. So, uh, you know, I think Greggy could be an option. He's certainly a Red Sox type of pitcher in that he doesn't walk anybody and gets a lot of strikeouts. Um, but I'm not sure they're going to want to make that commitment to a guy who's consistently underperformed his peripherals the last couple of years. Um, I do think Swisher could be an option for them. They're going to need a bat, uh, you know, especially in the outfield. Um, and Swisher's a guy they could take away from the Yankees, and they might look at him as a, a nice fit. Um, but I, I wouldn't necessarily uh, guess that the Red Sox are going to go out and spend their entire load this winter. I think they might take a little more conservatively, uh, maybe do some more dumpster diving that they've uh, done the last few years, and even when they were building up their 2004 team when they signed guys like David Ortiz. I wouldn't be surprised if they did more stuff like that, and then maybe in 2014 go out and really spend a lot of money. Yeah, it sounds like what you're saying, uh, or at least what I've gathered, is that maybe the, the 2013 free agent class is not the strongest? It's not the best, and mainly because the two prime guys come with a lot of baggage, or at least question marks. And Josh Hamilton, you don't, and there's injury issues, there's uh, performance issues based on what he did this summer when he swung at everything and made a lot of outs. Uh, and there's obviously the off-the-field drug and alcohol stuff in his past, which you can weigh however heavily you want to. And with Granky, there's the fact that he's kind of a little bit of an enigma. I mean, he's a guy who doesn't always uh, pitch as well as you'd think he would and uh, has had a bit of an up-and-down career and has had anxiety issues where he walked away from the game. So I think with both guys, you're not looking at them as a rock-solid, I-can-count-on-this-guy-for-seven-or-eight-years. Uh, you know, even with Penn Fielder last year, the weight issue – was not as big a deal as it was for either of these guys. And so does that mean that the AL East is once again going to be, uh, I mean, could it even be more wide open next year? Or is it, I mean, is it, are the Yankees going to run away with it? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I would say this makes it more wide open. I think this makes it more clear that the Yankees are going to be the favorites next year. I mean, the Red Sox probably aren't going to go into full-scale rebuilding mode and be terrible next year, but I doubt they're going to come into the season with a roster uh, as strong on paper as it looked this year. I mean, they'll probably perform better just because this year's team has wildly underperformed, but I don't think they'll be looked at as strong contenders for 2013. Uh, depends on what the Rays do. I mean, they're probably going to lose B.J. Upton. Uh, there's talk that they might have to trade David Price eventually. I mean, if the Rays uh, do have to make some moves for payroll reasons and, you know, talent consolidation reasons, they could fall off a little bit as well. So uh, I think the, the Yankees are certainly going to be the team to beat in the AL East next year. Now, and with regard to sort of the remainder of the season here, uh, you know, things are as clear now as they have been all season uh, with regard to, you know, the teams that are in something resembling contention at the moment. Uh, and, you know, and then you have teams uh, that are decidedly out of it at this point. Uh, the Red Sox, for example, are one of those teams. Um, I think uh, per cool standings, they have less than a 1% chance of making it. Uh, so the races are sort of taking shape, I guess. Um, do you have any sort of, uh, are there any sort of narratives that are interesting to follow um, as we basically come into the, the last month of the season here? Well, I think to me the most interesting thing is going to be whether the surprising young low payroll overachievers can hang on. I mean, we've already seen the Pirates start to fall off a bit. They went one in five last week. They're now behind the Cardinals by two games in the Central and in the wild card race. Uh, they're eight games behind the Reds, so the division title looks extremely unwinnable. Uh, and they're kind of falling out of the wild card race, or at least threatening to. They play three games with St. Louis starting tonight, so if uh, 
if they do poorly in that period, say that St. Louis sweeps them, and all of a sudden that's a five-game deficit, they, their season might be getting close to being over. But Baltimore and Oakland are hanging in there. Baltimore can win in these close games. Uh, Oakland just took two out of three from the Rays, so neither of these teams want to go away. I think for me, watching these kind of uh, not expected contenders is probably going to be the most interesting part of September. When when do the races sort of become real for you, I guess? Because uh, I know that uh, just sort of in mid-August here, getting into late August, um, you know, you recognize that certain teams are right around, you know, somewhere between 25 and 50 percent in terms of their chances of making the playoffs. And yet, uh, for me at least, for for this uh, fan, it's difficult to, to um, or I don't feel those races really on a visceral level. I'm sure this is different for everyone. It's probably different if you live within the market. But generally speaking, for you, when do you think they become, like, actually tangible? Uh, I think right about now, honestly. I think, uh, you know, looking at the Orioles' schedule this morning, uh, I noticed that their next – uh, like 14 of their next 17 games are against the White Sox, Yankees, and Tampa Bay Rays. I mean, for me, this is the time when the Orioles either get to put up or shut up. If they play well through the next two and a half weeks and they come out of this thing 9-8 and eight or 10-7 and seven against, you know, three of the better teams in the American League, there's no way to keep saying, oh, they're going to regress, they're going to regress, they're playing over their head. Uh, if they get through that part of their schedule and they get six games with Boston at the end of the year and a series with Toronto, there's no reason they can't win the wild card or one of the two wild card spots anyway. So, uh, I think for a team like the Orioles, their race is right now, and their pennant stretch is right now. Oh yeah, well that's actually yeah that's that's a good point. And then um, yeah, I'm just acquainting myself. Oh well, uh, and lastly, I guess uh, I'll let you go, of course. Uh, but uh, Max Scherzer, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but yesterday was a Max Scherzer Sunday. I did notice and uh, thought about firing you for the headline. Yeah, that's right. Well, it wouldn't be the first time. I mean, it wouldn't be the first time you thought about it. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it, but um. He pitched really well. Uh, there, were, there were stretches during uh, yesterday's game, his side of which I, I watched, and I don't even know who's pitching on the other side. Uh, that was um, where he was. Re- he was just brilliant. Yeah. Um, that also gives uh, the Tigers the, the, the pitchers uh, with the top two uh, strikeout totals, I believe, in the majors at this point. Um, the American League definitely. Um, the Tigers are not. Uh, uh, currently, they do not occupy one of the the two wild card spots, um, and yet they're probably um, I don't know the most well well I don't, not necessarily the most well constructed team, but they have sort of the most high end talent on their team. Yeah, I mean I think the interesting thing about the Tigers is uh, last week I think they posted like a 1.7 ERA. Doug Fister didn't pitch, and Verlander pitched one game. So uh, the back end of the rotation, including Scherzer, was really really good last week. Their bullpen was good. I mean, their, their pitching has really rounded in the form. The acquisition of Otto Sanchez, if he pitches well down the stretch, really does give them four quality starters, and Rick Porcello is not the worst fifth starter to have in the world. Uh, and their bullpen's good. So, I mean, we have that kind of pitching. Uh, you can overcome the fact that their defense is atrocious. And, uh, you know, Miguel Cabrera's hitting well and Fielder's hitting well. I mean, this is what they designed the team to be, is a bunch of good pitchers, a bunch of good hitters, and hope the defense doesn't kill us. And uh, it's working. So I think... You know, they're uh, slightly behind the White Sox in the division, but not so far that they can't make that gap up. Uh, they went 5-1 and one last week. Um, I think the Tigers are probably a favorite to be a playoff team, depending on whether you think they're going to win the division or uh, pass one of Oakland, Tampa Bay, Baltimore for a wild card spot. I'd be surprised if we didn't see the, the Tigers playing some kind of postseason baseball. Cameron, how do you know how, what, everyone's record from last week? Is this ready, ready um, information for you? 
Uh, well, I did a little bit of research for the Sports Illustrated Power Rankings this morning, and uh, a lot of that research is figuring out who did what in the last seven days. Oh, God. All right. Well, at least there's an explanation, I guess, because otherwise, if you just knew every team's record from last week. Yeah, I didn't until this morning, and now I do. Okay. Well, maybe forget that and fill it up I, with something useful. Yeah, I'll try. Okay. Uh, anything that you need to say? Um, I don't think so, at least not on the air. Maybe anything I have to say to you, we'll finish <laughs> after you stop recording. Okay, yeah, and I probably deserve whatever it is. Uh, well, that's great. Uh, so baseball, I guess, is going on. We've gotten out of the, uh, or we're getting out, I guess, of the, um, I guess you could call them dog days of late August. And Yeah, I mean, I think we're past the dog days. I think at this point we have like five weeks left in the season, and pretty much all the games count now. Right. Uh, and I'll also announce that uh, I think we'll have a, um, a David Lorla podcast this week, but I'm going away, uh, going back towards my birthplace to watch my sister get born. No. This is your <laughs> for, uh, after we talk about you getting fired, you're now going to disappear, and you're setting yourself up to make she's that get, disappearance less mysterious. Yeah, she's getting married. My sister's getting married, and I'm going to right. it. Yes. That's allowed. Congratulations to your sister. Well, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> Congratulations! Well, I, got, to I don't know the guy. So Congratulations maybe, uh, to the guy marrying my sister. Right, he's the one who did a good job. <laughs> I got to figure out his name. Anyway, um, well, yeah, that was great. Good. We'll talk next week. I mean, we'll talk before then, but we'll record next week. Right. All right. That's a uh, senior editor, managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Testuli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.